Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. So my guest today, a guy named John, has been in real estate for a very, very, very long time. He's one of the OGs, and uh, he's been through multiple recessions, uh, multiple tax law changes. He has seen interest rates as high as 19 plus percent, and of course, the more recent historically lows of 3% or so. But he has been around for a very long time, and he has purchased many properties. He's also helped and coached dozens and dozens and dozens of people. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that number is actually well into the hundreds. He lives in Florida and he has been using all kinds of strategies in terms of buy and hold. He focuses on single family homes, although he is invested in apartment buildings and pretty much everything else. But what is his favorite? It's the basic building block of residential real estate, the single family home. And what he likes to talk about and what he has proven and helped many people do is build wealth one house at a time. And that is the title of his book. So I hope you enjoy today's interview. And with that, let us go straight to the interview and let's see what John has to tell us. It is a great honor for me to welcome John Schaub to the show. John is the author of a great book that I bought many, many, many years ago called Building Wealth One House at a Time. And doesn't that ring a bell to you listening to this show? Because that's what we do all the time. We're buying real estate and building our portfolio one property at a time. It is a great book. I suggest you pick it up. He also has a follow-up to that book called Building Wealth in a Changing Real Estate Market. He has prospered through the years, through at least three recessions that I know of, he's gone through multiple tax law changes and he's seen interest rates ranging from a low of about 3% to a high of about 16% in his 52 year career as a real estate investor. So with that, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marco. I'm honored to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. You have so much experience. I mean, more than literally anybody I know, and I know a lot of people in real estate. It'll be interesting to kind of get into your mind and just get some perspective, especially having seen everything that you've seen. Why don't we start off by you sharing a little bit more about yourself other than you know the little bio that I have here, just so people have some perspective as to the breadth and depth of experience that you have in real estate investing. Okay, happy to, happy to. When I was in college back in the 60s, I, I took real estate courses and got my license while I was in college. And my senior year, I managed a little apartment building and a guy came along one day and wanted to buy it. So I sold it to him. So I made a commission my senior year in college and I made $5,000 commission, which was a lot of money in 1970. I had friends, uh, good friends in law school at that time and they were getting starting jobs at five grand a year. So I said, you know, I'm on to something. Let's stick with this. So I, I took a chance. I got my broker's license. I, I hired some salesmen. I developed some land. I did a lot of little things to start with, but I soon decided that I wanted to be an investor, not an agent. So I started buying properties in 1973 here in Sarasota, and I still have the first property I ever bought. I continue to hold properties, and I've learned over time that uh, not all properties are alike, of course. And I've owned a little bit of everything. I've owned some commercial, I owned a motel, I owned some apartment buildings, I owned duplexes and land and developed some land. So I've tried it all, and, and I settled, interestingly enough, on houses, titled my book, Building Wealth One House at a Time, because two reasons. One, they seem to make me more money. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. People compare them to trailer parks or other things. And then I had a, one of my best friends who was my partner. We shared office space for years, went to route for mobile home parks. And he owns a number of mobile home parks. He still owns some today. But his life is so much more complicated than mine is because when he buys a mobile home park for $10, $20 million, he always has to have partners and a lot of financing to pull that off. You don't write a check for that much money. And uh, so he's had partners. He's had a lot of employees. You have a 600 space park. You have employees. So, you know, his life is just so much more complicated. I love the title of your show because I, I consider myself a passive investor. You know, I try to delegate to my tenants as much as I can. Uh, you can't delegate everything to them, but as much as I can. So I don't have to interact with them very often. And I, I've had a uh, success in, in buying properties that attracted long-term tenants. And that's intentional. 
You know, I, I go for specific neighborhoods and a specific house in, a, in, a, in that neighborhood that will attract a tenant who has long-term potential. So there's reasons they want to be there. You know, school districts, shopping, churches, hospitals, whatever it is, there's reasons they want to live in these areas. And, and I rent, interestingly enough, all my properties off of signs. Now, I do use the Internet, but almost all my good tenants come from signs because I want somebody to drive through that neighborhood see that sign, stop, get out of their car, look around and see if they like the neighborhood. And you learn an awful lot by doing that. And if they like that neighborhood, that's important to me. You know, if you go and advertise just on the internet, people from all over will come and call you. You get a lot of traffic, uh, but they, they, you know, they're not necessarily interested in your house and that neighborhood. They're just looking for a house. And uh, so, so having this long-term perspective and, and specifically my, the first question I ask prospective tenants is how long do you want to stay in the house? You know, if they say six months or we're going to build a house <laughs> or we're just here short term on the job, I won't rent to them. I'm, I'm looking for somebody who has long-term potential. My average tenant stays about 10 years. Wow. And I've had people with me 30 years. I have 30 year tenants. I have several 20 year tenants. That's a passive investment. You know, it's like having a long-term employee. You develop a relationship of trust with these people. You know, if a 20-year tenant calls me up and says they have a problem, I'm going to work with them. They've been there 20 years. You know, they've made me a lot of money, and I believe what they're telling me. You know, if they said my grandparents died, I believe it. You know, when I, when I was in the apartment building business, it seemed like grandparents died once every three months. You know, they were <laughs> nobody ever had any money for rent because their grandparents kept dying. Uh, they had lots of grandparents apparently. Uh, but anyway, long-term tenants has been key to my success and uh, having property in the best parts of my town, I encourage people to buy the best property they can afford. Uh, and if you're in an expensive area like Orange County, you know, it, you really have to scratch your head and say, what can I afford and how can I afford it? How, how can I put together a deal that will work in my town? But I encourage people to do it in their town. I've, I've taught in Orange County, in Santa Ana, uh, 50 different classes, 40 different classes, I think, probably more than that, over the years. And uh, my most successful students live right where you live. Uh, they're, they're all over California. And they've been buying houses since the 70s and 80s out there. And they've been buying one house a year. Sometimes they only buy one house every two or three years. You don't have to buy as many houses in an expensive market to make it work. Sure. Uh, in a town like mine, where the average house now is about four or $500,000, you know, one house a year is plenty. Uh, if you go some towns, uh, you can still buy a house for $150,000. So maybe more than one house a year would work there. But, but you know, the, the, the living expenses in different towns vary too. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it all kind of works together. You know, if you live in an expensive town, you're going to have expensive houses. You live in a small rural town, you're going to have inexpensive houses, but it's cheaper to live there. Yeah, very interesting story. I mean, it's it's just funny how old school your methodology is for leasing your properties. Obviously, you self-manage. You don't use a property manager, but just to stick to a sign. I never really thought about it, but you're actually attracting people who are already in the area or want to be in the area. And so that just might be so much easier and you probably naturally draw from the tenant pool. Well, I think it does, you know, and I do, and I don't want you to think I don't understand the internet. I do advertise sure. on the internet, but I just know that the people that I get, and you relate to this, anybody on the internet relates to this, you know, they come from all over. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not that picky. They're just looking for a place to live. And they don't, they don't really want your house. They just want any place, you know. I want somebody who wants my house in my neighborhood on that street. Yeah. And I hear stories like, uh, you know, I ask them why. They say, okay, my, my parents live, you know, a mile away. Or, you know, all my kids go to this school. I want to hear that story. That's an important story to me. That, that helps me select the right people. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love the simplicity of the question that you ask. How long do you want to stay? I mean, it's brilliant. I was actually taken back when I heard you say that. Because I'm thinking, why don't more people ask that question? It just makes so much sense. Now, granted, there... You can't hold them to it. They're not going to put it in a contract saying, I'm going to stay for 10 years. But you can filter out people who have a very short-term stay mentality from those who are probably going to want to stay for a long period of time. It's so simple, but yet so brilliant. Exactly right. I love it. Yeah. yeah. I've been my, my favorite tenant who lives just about four blocks from my office here uh, wrote on her application because you know, it's the first line of my application, how long do you want to stay? She showed it the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> She's my Perfect. She's been she's been there for I can't tell you exactly how many years, at least 15 years. She has spent thousands and thousands of dollars improving this house because she loves the house. You know, she just wants to live there. Yeah. And uh, when you get that kind of tenant, it truly be, it becomes a passive investment. The other end of the spectrum, of course, is an apartment business. I, I had a bunch of apartments. 
uh, you know, people would stay a year and you'd be happy if they stayed a whole year. Sometimes they only stay three months or six months. And every time they moved out, you had to go back to work as a landlord. You know, you had to clean it. You had to fix it up. You had to find a new tenant. That takes a lot of yeah. time. And for you to have a passive investment, you don't want to have to spend that kind of time. You know, if you have 10 or 20 units and they all move out once a year, you spend a lot of time just running those units back. Yeah. Uh, if your average tenant stays five or 10 years, you don't have to work yeah. very much. So you have such a long history in the real estate investing space, and I know you've tried so many different strategies, you've bought multiple different types of properties. When you look back with the multiple recessions that you've been through and the housing market cycles that you've experienced, what stands out to you? What is your biggest takeaway or highlight, if you will, positive or negative, from all these years of being in the real estate investing space? Well, the most positive thing, I think, is uh, even though a lot of things change, and, and I don't know how many recessions I've been through, but the first one was 73, and, and there was one in 81 in the late 80s and 90s, probably more like five recessions. Even though you have these down years, you have to be a long-term investor. You know, you have to have a plan, and I, I tell people, plan to hold the property when you buy something until at least doubles in value, you know, however long that takes. Maybe some markets are going to happen a lot faster than others. But if you have that mentality going in that you're buying for the long term, not short term, then you're pickier about what you buy and about how you're financing, about who you run to. I mean, you just you're fussier. And, uh, you know, the, the, the goal is not to have a whole bunch of properties. At one time, I had properties in 10 different states and I was going toward 100 properties. That was my goal. Well, that was a terrible idea because there's nothing magic about 100 properties. It's just a lot of work and there's a lot of risk. A lot of things can go wrong because you lose control. I'd much rather have a small operation where I have better control because like most landlords, I think I, I do this because I like to be in control. You know, I like to have some control over my investments. Uh, I can't stand, I do own a few stocks, but you know, I have no control over the stock market and right. who runs those companies and if they go up or down. At least in the house, I can make a good decision about who I rent to. And, and uh, we've had this long-term trend, and I don't see any reason it will ever change, uh, where we have, you know, we, we have a shortage of houses, and, and that's a relatively short-term thing, and they, they may solve that at some point, but we're always going to have inflation in this country. Uh, it's just the way we're set up, because, we, we're, you know, the, the government's going to try to provide more services and collect taxes for it. That's the game. Well, as long as we do that, we're going to continue to devalue the dollar. So you need a hedge against inflation. And especially, you know, if you're going to use this as a retirement plan, you need to own something that will have increasing prices. Not, not The value is not as important, but increasing income, you know, increasing rents. So that's why I stick with the houses instead of going into some other uh, type of investment where I'd have less control and, and probably not be as profitable. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I love residential real estate, like the one to four unit properties over apartments. I've had two apartment complexes in a actually a small six unit, uh, you could call that an apartment complex. And, you know, I got rid of them. I actually prefer the control and the simplicity of single family homes, the quality of the tenants that I attract, whether anecdotally or through, you know, what property managers will often tell you, you know, you do get a, a more quality, less transient type of tenant. I mean, I agree with you. I've stuck to single families for a long, long time. Something you said was kind of interesting, and I want to ask you to explain why you suggest holding a property until it doubles in value. I mean, what do you do with it at that point? It, it sounds kind of contradictory to my investment philosophy. So maybe explain yours first. Well, I probably didn't say it exactly the way I mean it. I mean, until at least okay. it doubles in value. I don't want people to, to look for a quick profit. You know, the folks that make a quick 10 or 20 or $30,000, that's lovely. I mean, I bought a house, last house I bought, I bought it for 200,000, I could sell today for 450. That's three years ago. Now I bought it below the market and it did go up some, but I could sell that house today and make a couple hundred thousand dollars. But if I hold that house for 10 more years, it'll probably be worth a million dollars. Okay. And I'll, you know, now I have a bigger paycheck. So the, the whole idea of delayed gratification is important, I think, if you're going to build wealth, not, not cash it. Oh, I see. So you're just suggesting people hold it. So it's not it's not just sell it when it doubles, but hold it until it at least doubles, you know. And when I buy properties, I always say, I'm going to probably own this the rest of my life, you know, because I've owned properties now for 50 years. So another 50 years, if I'm still here, I'll be surprised. Yeah. And that's exactly what I say. I, I say, if you're going to buy good quality real estate in a good location, plan on never selling it. There's never a need or a reason to sell it unless you have like some medical emergency and you, you know, your hand is being forced. 
or you are doing a 1031 exchange to leverage up and build a larger portfolio, so you're just moving your equity from one place to another. Otherwise, why would you want to sell? You just keep it and then pass it on to your family, your heirs, or whoever it may be. Simple stuff. So, and that, and that gets you with this mindset that you want to buy something that you really want to own for a long time. I mean, it's just that simple. Yeah. If you buy something and you decide you don't want to own this, because generally because the tenants it attracts, it becomes you know a, a management problem to you. Uh, you probably should sell those because, you know, you can do better. But once you figure out mm -hmm. what you really like and the neighborhoods you really like, those are properties you'll keep for a very long time. Yeah, I agree. So you made a comment about a property you bought, you know, for 200000 it's worth, you know, a lot more than that. And you mentioned, you know, recessions and the number of years that you've been in investing in real estate. What are your thoughts on where we are today with real estate? Very broad general question. You know, I'm trying to keep it open-ended for you here. Uh, there's different markets, of course, but I think m most markets are hot right now. I mean, every, everybody I talk to is in a market that's going up in value and rents are going up in price. So it's just that time of the cycle. You know, there, there's big cycles in this, in this business and it's sort of like the tide. It comes in and goes back out again. I'm not predicting a crash, but I do think prices are getting so high around here anyway, where, where this house that I bought for 200, probably if, if somebody would list it, they list it for 600 right now. That's a crazy number, you know. Uh, builders are making tremendous profits right now. They're making a lot higher profits than they normally make. Uh, and part of that's because the inventory is short. But part of it is because credit is, is pretty pretty available right now and rates are still pretty low. And all that's going to change here. It's, it's not going to change overnight, but it's going to change over the next uh, year or two probably where the credit market might tighten up. There may be more foreclosures, which will, will get the bank's attention and they'll probably be a little tighter when they, who they lend money to. And we'll get to a point where the, the banks will be will tighten up the credit market. Interest rates are not as important as the availability of credit. Uh, if interest rates go to 8% tomorrow, people will still borrow money at 8% if somebody will make them a loan. Now, they won't probably be as smart as the people who borrowed at 4%, but if that's all you can get, uh, you know, people still will buy houses. I bought uh, 16 houses in 1981 uh, uh, from two different builders. They all had 14% loans on them. That's high. I bought them subject to those loans. We made money with every one of those houses. It's, uh, it's interesting, but people are so used to, to a very low interest rate now, especially if you're fairly new to the business, you think three or four or five percent is kind of a normal rate. Well, I'm not sure it is a normal rate. I think normal might be a little bit higher than that. And we've been below normal for a while. Yeah. Now. So as rates go back up, there'll be a pause. You know, people will, won't be able to qualify for loans. You know, if you can qualify at four percent, you may not qualify at six or eight percent. So it's going to uh, it's going to affect the, uh, the demand side of the market. You know, the supply side is going, going to be short. It's not going to catch up anytime soon, but the demand side certainly could change. You know, if, if people decide it's too, too expensive to buy, if people can rent a house cheaper than they can buy it, uh, and, and they will be able to, if the interest rates go up, you know, if they go to six or 8% and you compare your payment to the rent, the rent's going to be cheaper. So people make that decision. I'd rather rent than buy because it's cheaper. And of course, there's always folks that think, well, let's wait till they come down. Yeah. Well, if you've been waiting, you might have been waiting 50 years for them to come down because they haven't come down. Anymore. There are bumps in the road, but if you look at the, the long-term track record, it's, it's pretty uh, pretty solid. When, when you were borrowing mortgages at 16%, I'm curious to know, were those 30-year fixed-rate mortgages or were those interest-only or some other concoction of a mortgage type? There were some of each. These were builder loans. So some of them were construction loans. Some of them were fixed. Some of them have been converted to fixed. But uh, I didn't borrow the money. I don't want you to think I went down to the bank and applied to get those loans because there's no way I could have qualified for, for that many loans with that kind of interest rate. In fact, and this may surprise you, I've never borrowed money from a bank to buy a house in my life. I don't go to banks. Uh, and there's a lot of other places you can go to buy real estate to, than a bank. And, and the banks don't make loans during recessions. This is a recession. I bought those houses right in the middle of a recession. If I had perfect credit and a good job, they still wouldn't lend me money. They weren't lending any investor money at that point. Well, when they stop making loans to investors, that's when the prices get good. Well, that's when you want to buy. And if the only way you know how to buy is to go to the bank and get a loan, you're not going to buy anything. So there's all alternative ways. You've read my book. You know, there's a lot of different ways to buy real estate. So people are now thinking, how did you finance them? Well, I'm going to ask you the question. Was it seller financing? Were you borrowing private money? Were you partnering like as in a syndication with other people? How were you financing those those properties? I, I took subject to all those loans. They were existing right. loans at the bank. So I took subject to all those loans. And then I went to the banks and I negotiated lower rates and extensions on the terms. 
when we have a recession and banking business has yeah. changed since the eighties, but when you have a recession, banks don't want to foreclose. These are empty houses. They're all brand new houses. And I love buying brand new houses and I bought a bunch of them and I built a bunch of them over the years. Um, but, but, uh, the banks still don't want to foreclose, even though it's a good house, because, you know, it's just not their business. They don't want to manage properties. So when you have a lender, if it's a private lender or an institutional lender on the other side during a recession, and we saw this during the last recession, they make all sorts of deals. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll work out some kind of a solution with somebody, especially if they know somebody, the person on the other side knows what they're doing and has credit. And, and I have good credit and I have money in the bank. So they can look me up and they can say, okay, John's a better bet than the one we've got now. Who's a builder who's about to file bankruptcy? Yeah, <laughs> you know that was a bad bet. So they were trying to get a better horse than that one. I, I was a better looking horse. I think it's important to point out that a lot of mortgage loan financing today is not assumable like it was decades ago, where most mortgage loans were assumable. Yeah, these loans weren't assumable. They, they, these loans were just in default. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, okay. Now, Different situation. Yeah, yeah. The house I just bought, this house we bought a couple of years ago, had a loan to Chase Mortgage. It was $160,000. I took subject to that loan. I gave the seller a note for part of their equity, and I wrote them a small check for part of their equity. But that's, that's a great way to buy houses even today. Now, when you take subject to an existing loan, everybody has to understand the deal, and you have to make sure it's going to work. Because if you take subject to somebody's loan and don't make the payments and it goes into foreclosure, now they've got a problem. They're going to be mad at you. You've got a problem because it's on, in your name. The, the house is in your name. So you never want to put yourself in that kind of situation. But this is a house that we knew we were going to keep. It's in a good neighborhood. You know, it, 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 there was no risk to us to take that. And we always have plan B when we take subject to. And plan B is, okay, how are we going to pay this loan off if the bank wants their money? Because the bank has the right to ask for their money. They just don't do it very often. But if they called me up and said, we want our money, I've got to have plan B. I've got to know I can refinance that house and pay them off or sell that house and pay them off or have the resources to pay them off out of my pocket. Right, right. So we were talking about Sarasota and Orange County and other places. And, you know, we track, I track over 500 markets around the country. Of the core markets, about 82% of them are ranked right now as either strong or very strong. So we're still seeing a lot of growth in terms of price and construction too. Granted, all real estate is local. Are you concerned that there may be some real estate bubbles forming in various markets? Or do you think, I hate using the word crash, but do you think some markets are heading towards a correction or a crash? Well, if we have a correction, and we probably will at some point, it'll be different than the last time. It's always a little bit different. But last time, as you remember, we had a lot of, of uh, people that had borrowed money without qualifying for loans. And I'm seeing a little bit of that now. I don't know if you're seeing it in California, but we're seeing more and more people out here advertising that you don't have to qualify. We've got plenty of money, you know, so they're starting to push money out to people with lower credit ratings, I'm sure. But last time, a lot of people borrowed money who couldn't pay it back. So there were a lot of foreclosures. This time, if you think about what's happened in the last five years, almost all the purchases have been with good mortgages, yeah. you know, three, four, five percent loans, or they've been cash purchases. Well, that really stabilizes the market. And we've had these hedge funds come in and buy, buy thousands of houses and they pay cash. Now, the hedge funds themselves may get in trouble because they're leveraging. You know, it's, it's, not all, it's not like they have an unlimited source of money like the government. They leverage their money, too. If they get in trouble, you know, if there is a correction and, and uh, sort of like Zillow lost $800 million on, on their last adventure, uh, you know, these people are not uh, bulletproof. They can make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if they do, that, that could affect the market because they borrowed that money from somebody. And if they can't pay it back, that could start sort of a domino effect. So I, there will be, you know, markets have, our market's been going up 30% a year. This is our third year at kind of that pace. That's wrong. <laughs> you know, it can't sustain that for another 10 years. Or oh, no. So I don't know when it's going to slow down, but it is going to slow down. And we're sort of in an area of irrational exuberance where people don't think it's going to stop. They think it's going to keep going forever. Well, it's not going to keep going forever. It will slow down. And that's when there's going to be buying opportunity. But, you know, I've always advised people, 
don't try to time the markets. It's really hard to time a market. Nobody called the last market. Bruce Norris just moved to town. I don't know if you know Bruce, but he's a friend of mine. I know Bruce very well. Yeah, actually, he's the person I was telling you about before that. Uh, yeah, go and, ahead. And Bruce makes predictions. I listened to him give a speech here a couple of weeks ago, and people say, well, what's going to happen, Bruce? He said, well, I'm not sure yet. Yeah, because nobody's sure. Nobody knows 100% what's going to happen. But we do know that it won't go up 30% a year for the next 10 years. That just can't happen. Because when prices get high enough, people will be able to rent cheaper than buy. And then that slows the market down. And that's just a logical thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm actually good friends with Aaron Norris and Bruce. And uh, they, you know, they yeah, obviously yeah. moved good out people. to Florida good now, people. but they used to be in my backyard here. Yeah, well, he lives in my backyard yeah. now. He lives right down Well, the say hi to him for me, will you? <laughs> I will. We're supposed to have lunch, so I will. So just to kind of wrap up my question there about real estate bubbles and potential corrections and crashes, do you think there are some on the horizon or is that? I mean, clearly localized, but do you think we're headed in that direction or will there just be kind of... Depends on how long your horizon is. Yeah, I mean, if you say over the next 20 years, are we going to have a recession? The answer is absolutely yes. You know, I bet, I bet lots of money on that. I can't tell you it's going to be next year. I've been advising people for the last year or two to, first of all, get rid of your weak tenants. You know, get the best tenants you can. If you've got some sketchy tenants, a good time to get rid yeah. of them because there's a lot of people you can rent to that'll be solid now. Uh, some people will lose their jobs if we have a recession. Construction slows down. A lot of people will lose their jobs. So things could happen to churn this. We're at a point in the economy where uh, we have a tremendous shortage of people looking for jobs. You know, we have a lot more jobs than people looking for jobs right now. Yeah, that's unnatural. Yeah, labor crunch. That's unnatural. And you know, in my memory, I don't remember having that happen very often. I mean, I can't remember the last time we were, we were in this kind of situation. And it, it's a combination of the pandemic and, and a lot of different things coming together, I think, sort of all perfect storm situation. But it, it's got to change at some point. And so you just want to be ready. You know, you can't be per perfectly ready, but you can get rid of, if you're ever going to sell anything, now's the day. You know, if you've got a apartment building you don't like or a duplex you don't like or a piece of land you don't like, Get rid of it because you can sell it today. Get your tenants base as strong as you can. If you have a loan that you don't like, if you have a bad loan, and in my mind, a bad loan is a short-term loan, you know, something that's due in five years or a variable interest rate loan, or maybe a loan you personally guaranteed and you don't like the collateral, it's a good time to get rid of loans. So, so just make yourself safer. And then if you're going to sell something, we've sold a couple of properties here the last couple of years. We've got some cash sitting in the bank. People think it's a bad idea, but you know, it's just, a, it's a way for me to diversify a little bit. I'm not going to buy a whole bunch of stocks. That, that doesn't make sense. If we have a recession, the stocks won't do well either. I'd rather have money in the bank if we have a recession mm -hmm. because that money will become more valuable during a recession. I'll be able to buy something at a, at a discount during a recession if I have money in the bank. So having some money in the bank or having, uh, a way to get some money, you know, know, some, know somebody who has some money who you know will lend to you, other than a banker, makes sense. Because when we have a downturn, right. if, you're, if your houses are full with good tenants, if you have a little money in the bank and you don't have any bad debt, you're solid and you'll be able to take opportunity available, you know, you'll be able to take a, uh, op find some opportunities to, to, to buy during, during those times. And, and they're rare times. The recessions don't, don't come very often. They don't last very long. It, it, it may only be like a six month or a one year deal. So just be ready. Yeah. Although you didn't come right out and say it, are, are you suggesting or implying that within the next couple of years, two, three years, we will have a recession? Is that is that your prediction? Well, it's kind of signed for rational exuberance. I, I can't find a pickup truck in my town that's more than about two years old. All the builders are driving Cadillac and Lincoln Continental pickup trucks. Well, that's the dumbest thing in the world. My pool guy drives a brand new pickup truck. Everybody's got a brand new car. I don't think they're all paid for. <laughs> I think there's some loans on some of those cars. Uh, you know, but people, because everybody's making good money now, most people are not very good financial managers, no matter how much money they make. So they're going out and buying toys you know, and uh, they're buying the probably more expensive houses that they can afford. You know, just because a house has got a 3% loan on it doesn't mean it's going to be cheap to maintain. Uh, the roof's getting more expensive. The AC unit's getting more expensive. You know, the cost of maintaining a big house is getting yeah. more and more expensive. And, uh, you know, you see people who are just kind of normal folks going out and buying 3,000 square foot houses. And I said, yeah, that's an expensive toy. Yeah, it is. A doodad is uh, Robert Kiyosaki would call it. Yeah, yeah, they're toys. They're toys. So circling back to kind of your investment philosophy, strategy, and what you talk about in the book, how do you explain to people or the general public how buying one house at a time can actually make you wealthy? For some people, they just can't draw that, you know, connect the dots in their head 
that buying one house at a time can actually create the wealth you need? Well, it, you know, if you start, my dad came to me when he was in his 60s and he owned a house he lived in. He had a, a, a second home, a vacation home, but he didn't have any investments. And he said, you know, I, I, and he's worked for the same company. He worked for the same company for 50 years. Uh, and he had a retirement check come in when he retired, but it wasn't enough. And he had Social Security, but together they weren't enough. You know, he was still going to be short. So he said, I need to do something. I said, well, here's a plan. Let's buy a couple houses. So we bought some houses and we ended up selling a couple and paying off three. So when he retired at age 70, he had three free and clear houses. Now, that's not a lot of real estate. And in this town, those houses were probably worth a couple hundred thousand dollars a piece. They weren't, you know, but a lot of money. But they produced about $1,000 a month rent net each. So we had about $3,000 a month extra money. Well, when you're 70, $3,000 a month is a good thing. When he got to be 80, he had about $4,000 a month. Or then he got to be 90, he had about five or $6,000 a month, you know, because it kept going up. Well, you don't have to do anything spectacular in this business to make a difference in your life. And there's not many people that should go out and buy 20 or 30 houses. Most people should just buy a few. And the nice thing about buying one at a time, it'll become obvious to you when you have enough. <laughs> yeah. You'll wake up one day and say, I don't need any more. You know, I've got right. all the tenants I want. I'm doing all the work I want. And if I just hold on to these and get them paid for, they'll give me the income I need. So for most people, you know, we talk in a class about 10 how a 10 house plan, but if, if you're if you buy 10 houses and get them paid for in almost any market, you're going to have as much money as anybody in your town, with the exception of the top one tenth of one percent. You'll be able to do anything you want. You know, 10 free and clear houses anywhere. Let's say the average house is three hundred thousand dollars. That's three million bucks. In your town, it's a million dollars, so it's ten million dollars. My town's a half million dollars, so it's five million dollars. That's really a lot of money. And it's not just money. It's an asset that's going to continue to go up in value and the income will continue to go up. So uh, having just kind of having that mindset. And then I rewrote the book, by the way, in 2016. So there's a new edition now. Uh, but, you know, I, the, the idea of buying one house at a time is, is so powerful for a couple of reasons is, is it, you know, you get smarter if you do this. If you went out and bought 10 houses the first year, you may too, pay too much for them. You may buy the right or wrong houses. You may not know how to manage it and put the wrong tenants in there. You may not make it. You may just go broke. But buying one house a year is not that scary. You learn how to manage one tenant at a time. And over time, you get pretty good at it. This is not rocket science. If it was rocket science, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I am not a scientist. <laughs> That's such a simple plan that... I mean, if there's a big takeaway, that was it, you know, that you only need about three. I mean, your father did well with three properties. Now, yeah, yeah, what, what could you accomplish with five or six? I mean, it's, it's not a difficult plan and you don't have to buy them all at the same time. So for most people listening to this, that's a very achievable goal. And I think a lot of people could do that very easily within a, you know, five to 10 year period. Everybody could. I, you know, I really believe that anybody who wants to can, because first of all, if, if you learn a little bit about the business, it doesn't take a whole bunch of cash to get into it. A lot less cash than buying a Pizza Hut or McDonald's franchise or some other business operation, you know, yeah. and, it, and it's a lot less work. I mean, you don't have employees, you know, if you develop a relationship with a tenant one at a time and then you have tenants to stay with you for a long period of time. Um, you know, you don't, it doesn't take a lot of your time. So you still get to do a lot of things that I love to do. You know, you yeah. get to spend time with your kids and grandkids and travel and do all that stuff. You're clearly a do-it-yourselfer when it comes to property management. I'm just curious to know why you don't outsource some of it, or maybe in the past you have, and you had a full-service property manager. But why do you choose to self-manage? Just something you want to do and you enjoy? Well, I do enjoy it. It's not in the category of fun, though. You know, it's not like playing tennis or golf or going fishing. Uh, but it, it's uh, something I'm good at. And if you get good at anything, you, you, you tend to enjoy it better. So, so I, I try to be the best landlord in my town. That's kind of my goal. Probably not the best landlord, but I'm pretty darn good. You know, I keep people a long time. I keep them happy. Uh, and the reason I don't hire other managers is I know what that costs me. And it's not just the commission you pay. It's not the 5 or 10% you're paying them. It's the inefficiency is their, not, their ability not to rent to somebody who will stay five years. You know, they rent to somebody who only stays a year or two. That costs money. If I can have a tenant stay five years, I have five years of no vacancies. I have five years where I don't have to replace a carpet or paint the inside of that house. All that adds up to a lot of money. And if you manage, you, you delegate that to somebody else who 
you know, it's not their money, so they're not going to work nearly as hard at it as you will. They're more likely to rent to the first person that shows up with the money. You know, it says, I like the house, I'll take it. They'll say, okay, well, that's not enough screening for me. I want a couple more steps in there before I agree to rent them that house. So uh, when you delegate, it's not just the five or 10% you're paying. It's the inefficiency because they don't rent to the right people. And then when they hire folks to do work, sometimes they don't hire the right people. They don't get the right prices. So I've had the same people do my work for years. They're really good. They give me good service. So if I have a plumbing problem, I call my plumber and he'll go out there that same day and fix it. If I have an AC problem, I call my AC guy, he'll go out the same day and fix it. You know, that's a service that I can provide that, that most managers can't provide. You know, they're, right. they don't have that kind of leverage. You know? Yeah. So by, and by doing that, I keep my tenants happy and they stay a long time. That's why tenants stay a long time is they're happy. They like the house, but they like me too. They like to, that I'm honest. Uh, we raise our rents fairly, but we give them good service. We take care of the house. Yeah, for sure. So something we talk about a lot on the show are the topics of markets and neighborhoods and how to choose them, what to look for, the better ones at any given time. You sound like a guy who's mostly focused on your local market, something that is nearby because you're self-managing it. So let me ask the question about neighborhoods rather than markets. How do you choose the better markets or the best markets for you as an investor? Uh, not markets, neighborhoods. What are you focused on when it comes to neighborhoods in terms of where you want to buy? Well, as we talked about tenants earlier, you, you want a house that will attract the tenant who has long-term potential. So that house is probably in, in a safe, and certainly a safe place, safe part of town. And I tell people you should go out and walk around. If you won't get out of your car, and walk around and, and talk to people in that neighborhood after dark, you're afraid of that neighborhood. You shouldn't <laughs> rent it. You shouldn't buy there. You know. And when I teach, I only teach once a year. I haven't taught in three years, but I'll probably teach uh, maybe later this year. We actually take our students out in neighborhoods where I own houses and we have them go out. I don't go with them, have them go out and walk up and down those streets and talk to people in those neighborhoods to get to know the neighborhoods. And they, they, I said, and if you talk to enough people, you'll find a house for sale in there that's not listed, doesn't have a sign in the front yard, and you'll be able to make a deal on that house. And we find those houses all the time in that class. So by doing those things, and by knowing that that neighborhood feels good to you, that you live there, I would move into any of my houses with my family and feel safe and, and be happy. I mean, they're good neighborhoods, they're good places, they're the right location, traffic-wise and all that, you know? So it's, uh, you know, it's more of an art than a science, I guess. Uh, but I, it, when I go to buy a house in those neighborhoods, I don't want a house that's over-improved. If anything, I want a house that's a little bit under-improved. You know, so so my houses are not the biggest houses in those neighborhoods. They're they're generally kind of the, one of the smaller houses in the neighborhood, and and uh, the lots are important to me. So the location of that neighborhood, because it's very desirable the lots will go up in value. And, and uh, if you think about it, it's not the house that goes up in value over 50 years. It's the lot that goes up in value over 50 years. The house I've owned for 50 years is a teardown. It's been rented to the same people for over 30 years and they'll live there until I tear it down. They love it because they love the location. It's, uh, you know, I won't tell you right where it is, but it's, it's a great place to live. And, uh, but it's not much of a house. It is a three bedroom, two bath house, and then probably 1200 square feet, but you know, it's got the, <laughs> It's got the original terrazzo floors in it. They had carpet for a while, but then they threw the carpet out. So it just got terrazzo floors, which is very popular around here now. Um, but, you know, I put two or three roofs on it. But other than that, the house is pretty much original. Same kitchen, same bathrooms as built in the 50s, you know. Wow. But they, but they still like it. But again, th this is an important point. It's the lot that's gone up in value. That, you know, the house is worth well over a million bucks a day. And, and it's because that lot has gone up. Well, I try to buy in neighborhoods, the best neighborhoods I can afford, because I'm looking for that lot appreciation. Okay. And that, that comes where, where neighborhoods uh, gentrify, where they improve. You take an, an older, older neighborhood that where the houses were built, like College Park, where they're built back in the 50s. And uh, I'm talking about your town now. And, and uh, those houses are small, but people love them because they're, they're right there by the five and the 405 that go any place from there. You know, you get that location. The house is not more important. It, that important is the land you're buying. And yeah. then you want a, a basic house that people can live in and be happy there. Yeah, it goes back to the saying, location, 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 how important that is. 
It really is. And I use that. Yeah. And the nice thing about the house business is you don't have all your eggs in one basket. You diversify. You end up buying in four different neighborhoods and maybe hit a home run in one of them. Maybe one of them's a stinker, but the other two are about average and you do okay. You know, when I had apartment buildings, I had one big apartment building and, you know, it either going to work or it wouldn't. And if they tear up the street in the front yard or the guy next door opened up a nightclub or something, then I've got a real problem. So uh, there's a lot of safety in houses because they're not all on the same street. They're spread out. And it gives you a better chance of, of uh, making some nice profits. One of the chapters you have in your book is how do you choose the property? I'm paraphrasing here, but how do you choose the property that's going to make you the most money? Something to that effect. Mm -hmm. If I was to ask you that as a question, how do you choose a property that will make you the most money? What would you tell me or what would you tell somebody? Well, there's two parts of this. Number one, it's a personal question. It's not a generic question. So it's not like everybody in the world makes the most money off of this house. It's what's best for you today. You know, you need cash flow. Uh, if you have a good job and you don't need any more cash flow, you shouldn't be think buying things with cash flow. You should buy things that will appreciate more. Uh, so I, uh, when I first started buying, I, I focused entirely on cash flow because I didn't have a job. I was a real estate salesman and, uh, and you know, I shut down my office. So I wasn't, wasn't doing that at all. So I, I bought properties that had cash flow starting from day one. And the cash flow comes from how you finance the property. Okay? It has nothing to do with the rent. You can't raise the rent. The rents are the rents. Rents are market rents. But you, what you can do is change the financing. You can change how you structure that deal. So if I needed to have a, a house that had a lot of cash flow, I would structure a deal with a big down payment. I get the an investor to make the down payment to drive the, 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 uh, the mortgage down and to drive the price down. And we buy those houses where we would split the cash flow and I get half of it and they would get half of it. Some cases I'd take all the cash flow. They wanted all the appreciation. Uh, you know, if you're an investor, if you listen, the guys I invested with were all 23 years older than I was. They all had more money than I had. And, and they weren't necessarily looking for more cash flow. They were looking for more money. So, you know, if they put up $50,000 and they could turn that 50 into 250 in a few years, that was happier for them than having a 5% return on that $50,000. On the other hand, I was looking for cash flow. So I would take all the cash flow from the property and give them more of the appreciation. So I'm not sure where, where we started with this question. Uh, oh, the, the, the yeah, how do you make side, the most okay? money? So you make your profits, you make your profits different way. Okay. Uh, you know, sometimes you can buy things below the market. When the market's hot, pretty hard to buy below the market, but you know, people do, people still sell things for less than what they're worth. And, and an interesting thing is you're, you're dealing with folks, even the appraisers don't really know what something's worth today. You know, it's hard. To, if I was an appraiser, I'd be scratching my head here, I, you know, because yesterday the household for 400 today is for, listed for 695. What's it worth? <laughs> you know, things are moving so fast and I'm not sure it's worth, there's, there's a house, uh, down the street here, not far from here, I, I, I bought one house on that street for sixty thousand. Bought another house for four hundred thousand. This house was, is listed for eight ninety five, and I'm talking in a fairly short period of time here. <laughs> that, that's just crazy. So sometimes you buy below the market. Sometimes you're able to steal stuff, and that's generally during a recession. You know, where, where the banks are in trouble, where investors are in trouble, uh, where, where people are, are just you know can't make their payments, and and you can you can pick up houses back payments, you pick up houses for mortgage balances, and you get that discount going in. So that's one way you do it. But the most likely way, and the way I've done most of my deals is with the financing. So when I buy a house from somebody who wants maybe close to a retail price, the, the first house I bought, I bought at a retail price, I made a 20% down payment, and they carried back a 7% interest loan for 20 years. Nothing fancy about that. Nothing fancy about that at all. The only thing that was a little bit fancy is I didn't have the 20% down. So I borrowed the 20% from one of my salesmen and I agreed he could pay it back as long as he earned some commissions. I gave him the whole commission for a while. So that worked out. So you can buy houses with good terms and that house immediately had positive cash flow and it's had positive cash flow every day since I've owned it. You can buy houses on good terms that'll give you cash flow to start with. And that's a way to have a profit. So I, given a choice, I'd almost always rather get good terms than a good price and have to put a bunch of cash down. Because you know, I started, I had no cash, so I couldn't write a check right. for $50,000. And today I can, but I still don't like putting $50,000 down. I'd much rather find a seller who will finance part of that purchase for me in one way or the other, a lot of different ways to do it, uh, and have less cash invested in the house and have more cash on the side for, for a safety net. Do you think that's harder to, to do today to find motivated or 
Motivate sellers or don't, what I used to call don't wanters. Is that harder today because of the environment we're in where property values are appreciating so much so fast? The, the first real estate course I took was taught by a guy by the name of Warren Hardy. who yeah. coined that phrase, don't wander. <laughs> a long, long yeah, time ago. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then uh, Bob Allen took my class back in the 70s, and he picked up a, that term from me in that class uh, and, and made it famous, I think. Yeah. But there, there, there's always people, uh, Marco, there's always folks that have something happen in their life today that causes them to want to sell a house. Okay. Regardless of what the market's doing, it has nothing to do with the market. You know, it's, they got a job transfer or they had some issue with their family or something happened, you know, where they decided today's the day to sell a house. That house I bought uh, recently, uh, the, I walked into my office and knew who I was. I knew who he was. He says, we have decided to sell this house today and we'll sell it to you. And here's the price. I said, I'll take it. You, you know, wasn't much in negotiation, wasn't anything fancy, right. uh, but he knew I bought houses. And, and one thing you learn to do is tell everybody, you know, that you buy houses and you can close them fast. And the nice thing about owner financing deals is I close the same day. You know, if you come to me and want to sell me your house and you know, you have good title and we can figure that out, sure. we can buy it right now. Yeah. You know, I don't have to go to the bank to get a loan. I can make that deal today. But I think there's still opportunity. Certainly, there'll be more opportunity when things change. You know, interest rates go up, banks stop making loans. Now there's going to be opportunities. There'll be every place will be opportunities. But interestingly enough, it, it takes a lot of courage to buy during those times. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to look at a chart and say, I should have bought here. Yeah. Yeah. And I say, sure. But when there, we had 20% unemployment. You know, it's hard to find a tenant. You know, things get a little scary. And uh, so, Makes sense. Different opportunities at different times. Yeah, but yeah, for sure. It makes sense. You should get prepared. That's the one house at the time thing works so well because every time you buy a house, you get better at it. You learn something and you should learn. You should pay attention to what you're doing and get a little bit better at it every time you make an offer. And so you start now. You start when it's hard to buy. When it becomes easier to buy, you'll have some experience and, and you'll pick up, you know, you'll bet better prices, not necessarily better deals, but better prices. Yeah. And I love the title of your book, Building Wealth One House at a Time. It's not just the name of a book. It's actually a plan that works. Let's just wrap things up with uh, one last question here. You know, this kind of just ties a bow on it all. But if you look back, what were the what were the biggest one or two mistakes that you made in your investing career? Well, early on, I, I borrowed a lot of money short term. I buy uh, back in the early 70s. I bought a lot of properties and I would my, my standard deal that worked like a champ. Is I'd offer somebody a note and I'd said, I'll pay you five, I'll pay you for your equity in five years. I'll take over your loans, and I'll pay you for your equity in five years, and I'll give them a five-year balloon <laughs> note. Well, that was a genius idea until the five years went by. <laughs> and you had a whole, I had a whole bunch of notes that I owed. So I, I had to scramble to pay those notes and I paid them all. Uh, but short-term financing is, is easy. You know, it's easy to get people to say yes to a deal like that, but it's not a good strategy. You're much better off with longer-term financing, which takes more work, but it's so much safer, so much safer. You know, if you, if you signed a five-year note today with somebody at 5%, five years from now, rates could be 12%. You know, you go to try to refinance a house at 12% and make it work, you may not be able to, which means you have to sell the house and if rates are 12 percent, you may have to sell it cheap so short-term financing is, is a problem that was one thing i learned the other thing i learned was you know I, I was buying different kinds of property because i thought they had more profit i thought they had more cash flow and that, and that was motels and restaurants and uh, apartment buildings and then 10 states of course uh and i learned all that stuff the grass wasn't greener you know, the grass was not greener just because somebody sold you something. And just because there are more tenants in there didn't mean you're going to make more money. It just means you're going to work more. I make more money in the house business because I'm uh, the deals I make are all good deals. There's no marginal deals. If there's a marginal deal, I just don't buy it. So you have to learn if you're going to get into this business, what a good deal looks like, you know, and what it looks like to you. You know, to you, you may have cash in the bank, so a good deal may be $25,000 down. Somebody who doesn't have cash in the bank, a good deal may be a lease option where you just lease the house for 10 years with an option to buy it. So you take different techniques for, for different different sellers. And I'll tell you about a deal that just happened recently. A guy came to me. He had uh, 13 houses for sale. He was willing to finance them for 3%. He was an investor. And uh, the guy who came to me was the guy who wanted to buy them, and I helped him structure the deal. But he carried a note of 3% for 10 years. Um, you know, if you're selling a bunch of properties right now, 
you may think prices are high. You think prices are high? Marco, you think prices are high? It depends. I, I think they're kind of high. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to sell much more. But so somebody who's been doing this for 20 or 30 years might say, hey, I paid $50,000 for these houses or we're $700,000 today. Well, if I sell them and carry back a note at 3%, I make more every year that I paid for the silly house. You know, it, it, it can be a good deal. So people have different perspectives. And that's why when you're buying, the first lesson you have to learn, and this is a hard one, is not to think for the seller. Not to, not to kind of analyze this deal and say, well, they wouldn't do that. What you should do is make an offer that works for you, Where, wherever you are that day, however money, much money you have, whatever kind of cash flow you have to have off the property. You make an offer based on what you need out of the deal and then see how they respond to it. And if you can't put the deal together, there's always another deal. Yeah, great advice. When you're in the middle of a deal or a sale, you shouldn't really look at what is in it for the person selling you? The question you need to ask is, what's in it for me? What is the value I'm getting? Am I going to be happy with whatever that value or that deliverable is on my end of the transaction, regardless of how much they're making? They could have bought the house for ten thousand and selling it to you for two hundred thousand, and it's a great deal at two hundred thousand. So they're going to make one hundred ninety thousand dollars on that transaction. But if you're focused on the hundred ninety thousand dollars that they're going to make, the deal might not look like a good deal to you because you might be thinking that you're overpaying for it. But the reality is, is you've got to look at what you're getting from that transaction and what it's going to be worth to you going forward. So you have to have a forward-thinking mindset, not you know, not focus on other people's profit or loss. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, you one one more comment, and I think we're about done. But don't buy hoping that it'll go up in value. Don't buy based on appreciation. Buy with the idea that it, if it never goes up a dime, it'll still be a good investment for you. So you have to do the math. You have to say, okay, if, if, if this house you know, doesn't go up, will I still make money on it? And if you can't say yes, you shouldn't buy that house. I think they'll go up. Don't, don't get me wrong. I think they'll go up. They always have, but you shouldn't buy based just on the hope of appreciation. Great advice. That's a great place to close because I always say don't be a speculator. So... <laughs> Fantastic. Well, John, I appreciate you taking the time today. You've been very generous. I love your wisdom and insight. Tell our listeners how they can find you and get more information about you and your articles, your books, and everything else that you do. Well, I have a website. It's just my name.com. So johnshob.com. And uh, it, it'll have everything we're doing currently. My book, uh, Building Wealth One House at a Time, is available on Amazon and in bookstores. We don't sell them through the office. We'll just refer you to Amazon. I have recorded some courses and, uh, you know, I'm not here to sell anything, but if you want to dig deeper, you want to get more information on, on, on what we do, get on a website and there's quite a bit of information there. So johnshob.com. Beautiful. All right. Thanks again, John. I appreciate you taking the time today. Marco, it's been a pleasure. Let's do it again in a year or so. Sounds good. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John. He is definitely one of the seasoned OGs in the industry and uh, his books are very, very good. He is definitely one of the guys that likes seller financing strategies, but he is on the same page with us in terms of long-term buy and hold, buying good properties in good markets and good neighborhoods and uh, just holding them for the long-term and letting the equity build and your cash flows grow. So interesting conversation. I know I could have talked to him for hours. I just couldn't, obviously. I, I took up 45, 50 minutes of his time. But that's it. I uh, hope you enjoyed today's interview. And if you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe. We would appreciate if you gave us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. iTunes obviously being the biggest one. And that is it for today. So thank you for listening and we will see you all on our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.